Um, as you know, we are in the book of Revelation. This morning we are in uh, chapter 12, and I will be reading the entire chapter um, for us. And when I conclude reading the chapter, Jack will come up and um, preach on the section that we're on today, which is verses 12 to 17. So, the word of the Lord. Revelations 12, 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown, sorry, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and time and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now the last sentence... And he stood on the sand of the sea, belongs to the next vision, not to this one. So we'll cover that next week. Thank you for your, thank you for your patience. My voice is weak, but I hope I can make it through. But um, you're going to have to imagine the intensity and the enthusiasm this morning. Because that part won't work. It's in my heart. It just can't come out of my voice. 
Well, here we are in the third part of this chapter. The first 11 and a half verses talk about the victory that Christ and his people win over the dragon, the evil one. And at the end, we find Satan, though defeated, is not dead. In the last third that we'll cover tonight, 12, or this morning, 12b through 17, he is enraged and seeking the people of the earth to devour them. So we're going to just start with the second half of verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So we saw the victory part, and now we, this morning we focus on the, the woe part of the equation. That though Satan's been defeated, he is far from humbled. He is actually in full temper tantrum mode. And then in verse 13, it, it tells us a new little mini vision, a new story. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That woman we saw was the church, Old Testament and New Testament church. But the woman was given the wings, two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time, which is the same as the 1260 days, because it means year, years, which is one, two, that's total three and a half a year, which is three and a half years, which is the same as 1260 days, which we see earlier in the passage. The serpent then pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So first we saw Satan attempt to devour the male child. And he failed. And then he tried to wipe out the woman. But he was prevented from doing so. Why? Because God intervened to protect his church. What does this mean? Obviously, bad things happen to Christ's church all the time. How can we say that Christ's church was shielded from Satan's attack? Well, obviously, Satan has attacked the church in many ways. 
But Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Matthew 16, 18. And this is really a similar pattern to what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Where, um, like for instance in chapter 20, where Satan is prevented from deceiving the world for this period of time and yet obviously there are many who are deceived and then how Satan has been allowed to attack believers as clear even in the next verse and yet we're told that they that believers are sealed and protected from spiritual harm in other words Though Jesus allows Satan to attack and even damage the visible church, he carefully preserves and protects his true bride in the midst of it all. An important thing to notice here is that the passage is a a recapitulation of the story of the Exodus. When God's people were pursued by the Pharaoh of Egypt, who is referred to in Ezekiel 29.3 as the great dragon. Even though Pharaoh the dragon tried to stop Israel from... uh, getting away with water God dried up the water and carried his people off on the wings of an eagle into the wilderness for safety listen to the words of Exodus 19.4 right in the context of the story of the Exodus it says you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There, of course, having brought her into the wilderness, he nourished her with manna, with water from the rock, ultimately with quail. And even after the exodus, When most of Israel proved faithless, there was a true remnant of believers that God protected for himself. And in the end, all of God's promises towards Israel were fulfilled. But the true Israel was not the nation of Israel. Not even the fleshly descendants of Abraham but those among the people who truly worship the Lord. Let's go down to verse 17, the last verse now. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, having failed to get to her, and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold 
to the testimony of Jesus. So who is this rest of her offspring? If the woman is the church and her male son is Jesus, then the rest of her offspring, it would seem, are the individual members of the church, her children, the people of God, you and me, the ones to whom this book was originally written. The point is, now Satan is taking his wrath out on individual Christians. And this explains what's behind that. So the bad news is that there's an angry and malicious devil who has us in his sights. As 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But the good news is that in spite of his desires and intentions, he cannot ultimately hurt those who truly belong to Christ. We are sealed by God, not against all kinds of physical harm, but against spiritual harm. Remember Revelation 11, 1 and 2, where the inside of the temple was protected, but the outside part was given over to the world to be trampled. As the Westminster Confession, chapter 20, verse 1 says, or section 1 says, we are free from the evil of afflictions. Doesn't mean we're free from afflictions, just from the evil of afflictions. And that, my friends, is very good news. Here in verse 17, the two life patterns which are said to be characteristics of individual believers are obedience, they hold to the commandments of God, and perseverance, they hold to the testimony of of Jesus. So these folks keep the commandments of God in spite of the pressure that they experience from their own flesh and they hold to the testimony of Jesus in spite of the pressure they experience from the world around them. Another way of saying this is that they say yes to Christ while saying no to their own sinful desires. And they say yes to the word of God, while saying no to the, while saying no to the, what the people around them think. Now obviously they don't do this perfectly, or else the calls in this book for believers to repent wouldn't make any sense. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is not, do we constantly keep God's commandments? But is keeping God's commandments important to us? 
is it's something we very much want to do. And when we fail to obey the Lord, are we comfortable with that? Or does it bother us? And what do we do about it? Do we go to the Lord in humble, broken-hearted repentance? Or do we just move on hoping to forget about it? So now we've talked about keeping God's commandments. Let's talk about holding on to the testimony of Jesus. The second characteristic we're given here in verse 17 of believers. The presumption behind this holding on to the testimony of Jesus is that there's a strong pressure from the world to let go of the testimony of Jesus, to deny his name. In my opinion, this confirms the fact that the Bible teaches that in the world there will always be pressure to deny the testimony of Jesus. This is the way the world always has been. It's the way it always will be until Jesus returns. And in one sense, that's a blessing. If we got praised and rewarded by the world for holding to the testimony of Jesus, it would be hard to know who was sincere and who was just trying to get ahead. It's easy to think you're sincere until your testimony causes you problems. The seed sown among the rocky soil appeared sincere until the hot Middle Eastern sun began to beat down on it. And the rich young ruler thought that he was sincere in his desire for eternal life until Jesus said to him, Go, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Then come and follow me. One of Jesus' favorite questions to ask people was, Who do people say that I am? Or, Who do you say that I am? And among all the answers to this question in the New Testament, in the Gospel story, there were three basic replies. There were those who said, You are who you say you are, and worshipped Jesus. There were those who said he's not the one he claims to be, and they repudiated him. But there's a third category. There were many people, perhaps the biggest of the three categories, that were torn. Part of them was attracted to Jesus, but they couldn't go along with everything. They didn't claim that Jesus was an imposter. They didn't say he came from the devil. They said positive things about Jesus. He's a prophet. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist. He's Jeremiah. He's the carpenter's son. He's a miracle worker. And down through the history, this pattern has continued. They say of him, he was a great moral teacher. 
He was a great revolutionary with regard to ideas and principles. He was the most enlightened or the most evolved human being who ever lived. I call the people of this group adapters of Jesus. So we have three categories. Those who accept Jesus, those who reject Jesus, and those who adapt Jesus. At General Assembly, a week, the week before this last week, many proposals were made, but then amended. And often, in the end, when the vote was taken, the moderator would say something like this, Mr. Smith's motion passes as amended. And trust me, many of the proposals needed to be amended. The problem is that many Christians are like this toward Jesus, who doesn't need to be amended and must not be amended. They approve of Jesus, they accept Jesus as amended. He may, it may be their own amendment, it may be their pastor's amendment, it may be their tradition's amendment, their church's amendment, it may be their favorite author's amendment, but in the end, they don't accept Jesus as he is. They don't say what Mary said, may it be to me according to your word. They're just not comfortable with total surrender. And as long as the Christians around them are accepting of their minor exceptions, they feel comfortable. But Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do the things that I say? Luke 6.46 Now, I really don't want to make any true believer feel uncertain about his faith. But I also don't want to make those who are feeling I don't want to make those who are fooling themselves feel like they're safe. It actually took quite a long time for even the apostles to get past their objections, to get past their attempts to just to adjust Jesus, to fix Jesus, to improve Jesus. Eight verses, and this is something I just noticed this last week, it's amazing. Eight verses after Peter professes first among the apostles, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Eight verses later, he is rebuking Jesus for talking about going to the cross. And none of the others accepted those statements of Jesus either, in spite of the fact that Jesus continued to repeat it over and over. 
And even after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, most of them had big problems accepting the inclusion of the Gentiles, even though God made it clear in a number of ways. The fact is, it's a temptation for all of us. But like Job, eventually the disciples put their hands over their mouths and said, let God be true and every man a liar. Every man, including me, be a liar. So in conclusion, there's an angry and malicious devil who has us in his sights. He once thought that he had a good case, but now he's been defeated by Christ and he knows he's lost. He's angry about it. And he wants to do as much damage as he can. He has no strategy. He has no real hope of success. He's just angry. And he wants to do as much damage as possible. In Les Mis, and I don't know if this is accurate from the book or not. I've, I've read the book but a long time ago. But in the movie and in the play... The revolutionaries, they had a strategy they thought that would work. They thought the people of Paris would rally to their side if they began to stand up to the oppressive government. It didn't work. But when it became clear that it wasn't going to work, they didn't surrender and they didn't try to escape. They threw themselves into the battle like madmen. They said, let us die facing our foes. Make them bleed while we can. Make them pay through the nose. This seems to be similar to Satan's attitude towards God, God's people after being defeated by Christ. So we have a vicious enemy. He hates the male child born to the woman, but when he fails to devour him, he goes after the, his mother. And when he can't get to the mother, he goes after her other children. This helps us to understand why the world is so hostile to believers. Ultimately, Satan hates us because he hates Christ. And this is one of the main reasons why there's so much trouble in the world. It's not just regional conflicts or religious differences. It's not the environmental deterioration or wealth imbalances. It's because the devil is angry that he's been thrown down and he's provoked like a roaring lion looking to devour and to destroy. It sounds scary, honestly, doesn't it? But we must remember that the devil is God's devil. He can only do what God gives him permission to do. Our Father will not allow one hair on our heads to be damaged unless he knows it's best for us. Our Father is not only a skilled surgeon 
who knows just what procedure needs to be done and has the skill to do it perfectly, he also is doing that surgery on his own children, whom he loves more than they love themselves. I said earlier that the story of the woman uh, fleeing from the man is a recapitulation of the story of the Exodus. There is one strange detail in this recapitulation of it that's not in the original, and that's that the, that the water comes out of the mouth of the dragon. So what's that all about? Well, that, and just like, the water coming out of the dragon's mouth actually fits into a pattern that we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Remember the meaning of the sharp sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? which symbolized his word of truth coming out of his mouth. Remember the fire that was coming out of the mouths of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, destroying their persecutors. And we said that it symbolized how the gospel spells judgment and death for those who reject it. Well, just as Christ's sword coming out of his mouth symbolize the word of truth coming out of his mouth and just as the fire coming out of the mouth of the two witnesses symbolize the dangerous gospel message coming out of their mouths so the water coming out of the mouth of the serpent symbolizes the lies deceptions and false teachings coming out of the mouth of Satan by which he is trying to destroy the church. Just as the serpent deceived the first woman with deceptive words, so now the serpent here attempts to deceive this woman with a flood of deceptive words. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I love the way that that's worded. It says that the intention was to lead the elect away. But it adds that if possible, as indicating that it's not possible. That's what he's wanting to do, but it's not possible. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. It's important that we know that false teaching is not just a different opinion 
not just someone making a mistake. It is satanic deception designed to tear the church away from Christ. And so in the end, this passage calls us, in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the warfare, to hold firm to the testimony of Jesus that he was the Son of God and the promised Messiah, that he was sent by God to save the world, that on the cross he died as our substitute, bearing the penalty for our sin, that the scriptures are the very word of God, without error and fully trustworthy, that God is with his people even through the valley of death, that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that he will return at the end of history, creating a new heavens and a new earth while he will reign forever with his people. And all the rest of it, let us hold firm and not let go. Heavenly Father, we live in a day where it seems like the world is being flooded with false ideas. And we thank you that you have given us a rock that we can cling to and find safety and refuge in the midst of this great flood. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would hold us firm in your hands and help us to be unwavering. For Lord, we know that though there are all kinds of ideas and thoughts that seem appealing to us in some ways, yet there is no place for safety but in Christ. And there is no word of truth that's trustworthy apart from the word of Christ. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to uphold us and make firm our faith in a hostile culture. We also pray, dear Lord, that you would reveal yourself to all those that you have chosen and help us to be quick to communicate your truth, which is the only hope of a dying world. Now, Lord, we thank you for the invitation you've given us to come to your table and to partake of Christ himself. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would allow us in our hearts to be open to him and welcome the food that he is for us, true food and true drink. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.